Hi, listeners. Quick note to this week's podcast with Kaiser Quo. Kaiser typically talks with fancy think tank people, NGO people, people who require a readout of a resume for an introduction, whereas we intro most of our guests simply based by their Twitter handle and why they got banned. So obviously the collision of worlds will generate heated disagreements, and that's why Kaiser is one of our favorite guests, because we can go no holds barred in airing these things out without fear of personal affronts or accusations of bad faith, and just get a genuine collision of perspectives. So to keep things going along, this is an edited version of the conversation, which even at an hour 40, we ended up omitting a lot and try to preserve the differences of perspectives while emphasizing constructive responses. For the full unedited version, where things do get a bit more heated and contentious, we've released that as a Patreon-only bonus episode, which has about an additional hour that was left out of this version. So if you like this podcast, consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money we earn goes towards our Asian American Writers Fund, which we use to pay writers for their works on Asian American politics and thought. Head over to patreon.com slash planamag. On with the pod. Escape from Plan A. All right, welcome to uh, Escape from Plan A. This is your episode for this week. Uh, as your host, Teen, I've got Jess with me as co-host. Jess, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Pretty excited for this one. Yeah, uh, it's been a long time coming. So last time we had our special guest on, Kaiser Quo, uh, it was episode 162, and I think that puts us almost almost exactly a year ago, at, at the very beginning of this COVID pandemic. And we're a year into it, and I think it, it's a, a follow-up conversation from that episode, which if you haven't heard it, maybe it's worth hearing, maybe it's worth listening to that one first, but I think this will be a pretty self-contained episode and self-explanatory. Uh, but anyway, Kaiser Quo's been gracious enough to join us. Uh, how are you doing, Kaiser? I'm okay, you know, in COVID-adjusted terms, it's all fine. Yeah. <laughs> Got my, uh, my, my shot, my first shot coming up on Saturday, so pretty excited oh, about nice. that. Oh, yeah. nice. Very nice. Yeah. That spells, that spells the end of it for most people in terms of like getting through this kind of bizarre year um yeah well i'm glad to see you're both with us still <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's not that, that 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 you can't take that for granted can you no no indeed not um yeah i mean because like where i live was like basically at that time epicenter of the entire globe right elmhurst right. new york i just happened to live like two blocks from that hospital mm-hmm. so, so it was i was really it was really nuts and i had been to wuhan that year so i was like <laughs> is this thing following me or what what's going on um <laughs> Don't let that get out in the news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've been real. I've been keeping a low profile on that. We're front. already regarded as vectors for disease. And yeah. yeah. Wanna... Oh man, I can already see the New York Times headline for that Chinese American man who went to Wuhan in tw- fall of 2019. Radical leftist. Coincidence? Radical left. We gotta. Right. We gotta put that in. Radical leftist. Coincidence? Maybe not. <laughs> it um, might be. Uh, it might be uh, worth just introing kaiser like um like we did last time maybe just like because for for i'm assuming most people are familiar with you who listen to this pod but it might be worth just introducing um maybe a little bit about your background and what you're up to these days you want me to do that myself (laughs) kaiser is uh (laughs) i think we we we, what was your position at sub sub china was it just a founder or um no i'm actually not a founder i actually joined um so i the, the title is is uh 
just basically the host of the Seneca podcast. Okay. That's, that's uh, the simple, simple title. Yeah. So Seneca podcast, I recommend everyone, if you're not already like subscribed to it and listening to it, I think you guys have uh, some of the best uh China-centric content. You have like all the really top-level experts. Kaiser basically knows everyone in that field, and um, it's like uh, what you've you've got probably close to six hundred episodes in the can at this point. Yeah, tons of content. That. Yeah. Um, so I listen to it. A lot of us listen to it um, just to kind of keep abreast of it. It's it's a it's a real great way to sort of supplement what you what we see in the news and and things like that. So, Seneca podcast. Thanks. Right. Thanks. Man. Yeah. Um, so to, to kind of kick things off, I guess, uh, before we kind of get into, uh, the topic of the day, I was just curious because, uh, the reason I, I really, uh, think you're the right person to talk to here is because there is this strange, uh, unfortunate connection and maybe not so strange, but there is a connection between the political climate as it comes to U S China relations, which is a, a big, heady, historical academic topic in many ways, and the violence, uh, the outbreak of violence and sort of street level racism that is directed at Asian Americans. I think that's become quite clear yeah. uh, in the past few months. And you are uh, an Asian American. You're raising a family in America. And you're also very t- tied into the larger sort of political conversations going around around U.S. China. So, so very much like you are at the very sort of like an embodiment of this intersection. And so uh, I think you're the really uh, the, the right person for us to go to because uh, we, you know, me and Jess and others, like we've kind of anticipated this moment, but I don't think we're able to see much further than this point. And so we kind of were uh, saying, huh, uh, maybe we need to start talking to other people and see what they see. But before we get into that, I'm just curious, like kind of how, you know, you're raising kids, you have a family. How are you all like talking about what's going? Do you talk about it? And if you do, uh, you know, are you having conversations about this at home? No, we certainly are. Uh, obviously, the immediate physical danger is not terribly pronounced. I live in this very, very diverse and very tolerant uh, liberal bubble, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh, where neither of my children are both high school students right now know a single other student who would describe themselves as a Trump supporter. Um, it's the the ethos is is very you know very woke, very anti-racist. So um, there, there's that. But then I think you know the the more important perspective comes from my wife, who is from mainland China. She's you know doesn't speak English. She's born and raised in Beijing, and. Uh, her attitude, you know, since we came here in 2016, has just been just sore disappointment after sore disappointment. Just watching, uh, just all these manifestations of this really deep, deep-rooted structural racism directed not only against blacks but also against Asian Americans, and she's felt it pretty poignantly. Hmm. 2016. That's a that's a rough year. It to, was for, as as your entree to America. As that's an, right. I mean, we were we were. You know, in Airbnb before moving into the first, you know, the rental that we had for the first year, and uh, that's when Brexit happened, right, and it was a right. you know a dark premonition of things to come. Is it a bit of a referendum on on you as well? Yeah, so it is. Unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, the, the, seriously, no. I, I I feel like I was, you know, giving her all sorts of assurances, 
that the Democrats would win in 2016, that it was just not possible that Trump would pull it off. And uh, I mean, at that point, he hadn't even clinched the nomination, you know, as we were talking about it. So it just was just obviously, you know, I got a lot of angry glowers during the whole, you know, fall of 2016. <laughs> uh, I mean... Uh, I, 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 I think that that's kind of just a, a compression of a larger trend that's been going on for, um, I think my entire life. I, yeah, yeah. um, I'm in my 30s now, but uh, the mood since you know the mood in my family and in the, in the families of the other you know Asian Americans, around, families around me, uh, who primarily grew up in like the late 90s or early aughts, um, is is an ineffable sense of progression. Um, that there is definitely a generational improvement that we can expect. That my right. mom always liked talking about, you know, um, like uh, she's talking about. Oh, I expect, you know, if life expect like when when a report about life expectancy jumping up came out, she was like, oh, okay, I'm really happy about that. And then for your generation, I expect that to extend further, and then your kids and and so on and so forth. Um, so there's this this ineffable like assurance that things are always going to get better in some way. That's right. um, and I feel like uh, for a good number of Asian Americans, that was the promise that a brought us here, uh, took us out of our homelands and put us here, put down roots here. And this is what a lot of us kind of banked our, our livelihoods around the assumption that, you know, you, you go you go to school, you do the time in the trenches, you will earn money, you'll be able to raise a family in a better situation than the one you did. Um uh, and a lot of the little warning signs kind of went unheeded for a very, very long time, I think. And it all, you know, that check came due, um, yeah, 2020 exactly in a real right. big hurry. Yeah, it sure did. Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, mean it's, it's, it's been especially painful for my wife. I mean, having to watch, uh, the Chinese community here just so completely just torn asunder by this election with, Old friends of hers, dear friends of hers, you know, from high school in, in, in Beijing who had moved here before and are full-blown, you know, uh, epic times reading, uh, guo and gui worshipping Trumpers. I mean, it's just, it's it's really, really frightening. We see, even here in this rel relatively liberal community, a lot of the Chinese voices uh, on talking on WeChat uh, who not only were, were pro-Trump, but in the aftermath of the election where, you know, stop the steal types who were, uh, you know, all in on the capital invasion, that, that kind of thing. It's, it's just been really dispiriting. For, for, well, for that crowd, uh, what's, do they talk about this, the outbreak of violence, which is a, I think it's an unavoidable topic at this point. I mean, yeah, I, I don't yeah. think there's, there's, there's much in the way of being able to deny that this is a real phenomenon. Uh, but and yet they do. they do. talk about it? They do. Yeah, they absolutely deny it. They say that oh, wow. there is no evidence right now that the Atlanta shooter was racially motivated. I mean, it's mm -hmm. unbelievable. They uh, play up the the fact that one, to my knowledge, only one of the the the, uh, the, 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 the attacks that happened in New York and in San Francisco and Oakland and all over the country, really, uh, was obviously perpetrated by a person of color, by another person of color, by a black person. And they play that up. You know, they, they're... Mm -hmm all in on these wedge issues. You know, it's still affirmative action and their sort of casual racism. Uh, it's the worst. <laughs> I mean, I confess to just not understanding the that frame of mind. I've, I've tried I, I, to understand I think, it. I just don't get it. I think it, it comes down to just one thing. I mean, look, mm -hmm. it's 
I haven't seen the statistics yet. I, I think that there should really be good granular survey data on this, but I think that the, the uh, age at which one immigrated and the recency of immigration are the, the really huge determinants here. And I think for the people who've, you know, gone, who've jumped on the Trump train, those, those types, it really says more about the China that they left than the America that they live in now. So much mm-hmm. of it is just because of that brutal, amoral ethos of, you know, sort of get ahead pragmatism. Uh, that's, that's what shapes their values. They come from an extraordinarily low, low trust society. They come here and it's like, I'm going to fuck you before you can fuck me. And I'm going to get my kid into Harvard. Right. And if you get in my way, you know, I'm, yeah. Right. It's a it's it's kind of materialist in a sense. And I'm not talking about like consumer, like, you know, consumer behavior or anything. Materialist in the sense that this is that America is then seen as like a substrate for improving your livelihood. That's you are right. here to take what America can offer. Um, Which means a total absence of civic virtue. Total, total absence of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Kaiser, just... Um, so, uh, so there's obviously you know a problem with that mindset and people who share in that mindset. Uh, that's that one's obvious. Uh, I would think. Um, I for me the difficulty then, and I know I know many people who share in some version of of what you're describing too. Uh, the difficulty for me then is uh, is the lack of ability to present a a fully viable alternative. Um, as in, like, we have a two-party duopoly, the Democrats and the Republicans. The problems with the Republicans are well-characterized and well-understood, I think. And my personal issue is that, uh, especially when I'm talking to Asians or Asian-Americans, it's hard to present, say, the Democrats as the full, the the polar opposite, the counter, the valid, the ideologically valid counterpoint to what, what uh, the Republicans are putting out. Uh, I think one of the things that we wanted that Tina and I want to talk about here is um, the uh, the definite strain that that being anti-China or anti you know broadly anti-Asian is a bipartisan is a bipartisan issue one that shares the most bipartisan support. So we've seen casual um, casual xenophobia and overt you know overt um, anti-Asian policies being pushed by both sides uh, of the aisle on this. Uh, so it's a it's it's a it's a tough it, for me it's actually it's pretty tough. Yeah, I, I just don't think that that's a fair characterization. I think yes, there there is a consensus that you know the United States should be tougher on China. One side though is just nakedly racist, indulges the worst sorts of just gratuitous name calling. Uh, the other doesn't. The other actually uh, has a propensity to listen much more. There are if you look at all the moderate voices. They're overwhelmingly from the Democratic Party and not from the Republican Party. There were a few, but mostly, you know, on, on issues of free trade or whatever. But I mean, there, there are only a handful of Republicans that I can think of who aren't all in on this sort of, you know, xenophobia. But there are plenty of Democrats who aren't. So I just don't think that's a, a fair characterization. Yes, there is continuity that we've seen from the Trump administration to the Biden administration on some facets of, of, of China policy. And do I wish that it weren't as bipartisan as it is. Absolutely, I do. But uh, there's a gigantic difference. And I think that it really does a disservice to, to try to paint them as exactly the same. They're not. They're, they're, they're still very different. And I infinitely prefer the one to the other. I, I, think, I think we got tripped up on this distinction last time because, well, it, la- I think last time we talked, I think there was this belief that uh, we were trying to, uh, trying to draw an equivalence 
that there's fundamentally no difference. I think the I think it's not that there's no difference. It's just that because there is a marked difference, that there is a lot of pressure for those of us who I don't think it's I don't even think it's a worthy discussion right now for us to talk about, oh, are, are Republicans in any way offering a way out of this or do they offer? No, I mean, I, I, I that's that's almost assumed, I think, for at least for the purposes of our podcast, right? Yeah, uh, for the, sure. For, that's definitely where I'm coming from on this. Like one is unquestionably not not an option. Um, it's that uh, it's it's that. You know, I'm not I'm not satisfied with lesser evilism. That I mean, I, that was pitched, that was pitched as a, a sell for Biden for a long time in some communities last year as well. That you know, you go here because it's a lesser evil, or there are viable alternatives. And it's, uh, I think it's causing that uh, that uh, that mindset is actually causing some issues here. So I'm only speaking within that spectrum. Yeah, not uh, yes. a- absolutely not saying that the other side is viable at all. Yeah. So let's let's stick to that spectrum because I think one thing we can probably agree on is that the um the 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 attempt to try to pin covid as something that was done to us by china uh which i think is a total inversion of how we should think about responsibility here um the 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 theories that have gone into it like we saw josh rogan go and say that when trump during the trump um when Trump was still in office, we saw. Uh, I think was it Pottinger that had that had kind of hinted at the at the notion of a laboratory leak. Yeah, no, um, it was Pottinger working through Rogan, pretty obviously. Yeah, right. So this was this was something that the Trump uh, administration had been pursuing, and I and it and and I remember, and no one talks about this, but Peter Daszak, if that's how you say his name, uh, the, the the who was the American representative on the WHO team that actually ended up going to Wuhan. And he worked at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Right. He was on 60 Minutes a while ago. I mean, I think this this was before Biden came to office and had roundly said on 60 Minutes with references to the whole WMD debacle back that precipitated the Iraq invasion, saying that that we need to make clear that this is a false story. These kinds of viruses were not even studied at the Wuhan lab. There are many virology labs. This isn't some great coincidence. And he was physically there. He's like, there's no way that this could be the case. Right. Okay, so I, I was like, this is a great repudiation of what I thought was an extremely dangerous tactic by the Trump administration. And this is the kind of lie that I think when you go out and look at street violence, this is the kind of thing that they're pointing to. Right, right? exactly. We fast forward now. It's in Mar- it's we're one year into it. We're we're finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, and we get a team, an international team, into China, which at this point really feels like something precip- Like it kind of feels like those weapons inspectors that were going into Iraq. I mean, yeah, this they're looking for bit. fault. They're not looking for science. I mean, they're 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 going or at least the. Maybe not them, but like the media is is, is setting it up this yeah, way. Certainly not them. I think the, the WHO people went in. Look, yes, there were yeah. good faith reasons to go and look for COVID origins. I mean, it really helps yeah, us yeah, to yeah. understand. Right, for sure. And I, yeah, I don't think absolutely. that any of them went in prejudiced, except possibly prejudiced against you know the possibility of a lab leak, and that is based on on good science. Yeah, uh, yeah. And Daysack, I think, was is is. Look, there are a lot of people who really see him as in the pocket. They, they see him as just sort of too cozy with other colleagues from the WIV. Um, but yeah, he's not the only person out there yeah. who's, who's yeah. talking about this. No, you're you're right. The the, the resonance with the uh, the run up to the Iraq War is just really amazing. I, I did a show about that with Max Fisher of the New York Times uh, 
I encourage people to listen to that because a lot of the same thing where you had journalists at major publications being spun by people within the administration to try to gin this up. It, it started to sound extraordinarily familiar to me. And I think the parallel, yeah, it's, it's kind of uncanny. So I guess we come at this just from a, a different different perspectives because I I know I would I would emphasize the the circumscribed space that they have to operate in I would I would emphasize that uh, look Trump in his final hours left so little room for maneuver that you know there there is a a, a political reality that. On you know in, in in January when the Biden administration came into office, they understood probably better than we do, uh, where they pay huge political penalties for anything that looks simply too quote unquote soft on China, right? I understand that, and I think we have to operate within that framework. We have to understand uh, that there's you know it's the art of the of the possible, and there are some things right now that are simply not possible. Well, I mean, one of the things that aren't possible is divesting from China. Right. Uh, and we're not doing that either, right? I mean... <laughs> so, I mean, then that puts us... Yeah, you're right. That's that's absolutely hard. We cannot divest from China. And I think people who are, uh, who are in the know on this and in power know that we can't go to war with China either. Right. So that leaves a very that leaves a very specific pressure release valve, and I think uh, Asian Americans and Asians in the U.S. have been have been that pressure release valve. We've been paying the price for it, unfortunately. Yeah, right. I, I, there I agree with you. So, so in that sense, then you know, then it's hard not to see this as an as part of a, a broader strategy. Then that uh, the administrations have changed. Yet, if the media establishments, who we all know have deep ties to uh, Suddenly, you know, suddenly they're running rogue on on this sinophobia, talking about uh, hamster ovary cells, uh, like it's a like it's a thing being sold I, I just, at the I Wuhan think you guys seafood are market. Overestimating the amount of coordination and, and conspiracy, it's just that doesn't make any sense to me. I have to make it clear that the re- the reason I get really worked up over this stuff is not because I'm trying. To, I don't like Biden. It's not because I don't like liberals. It is because the things that we see that we focus on and the way the kinds of conversations we're focusing on or paying attention to are not the kinds that would be of interest to, say, um, the people who come onto Seneca and talk about this topic in, in a different way. I'm looking at stuff that someone like Bill Maher is saying on HBO, right? I'm talking about retail level discussions. And the reason I care about that is because that's what really moves the needle in terms of public perceptions, right? People aren't paying to nuanced discussions the the kind that you're having. People are paying attention to easy to digest junk food that's being pushed on the airwaves. And that's where the danger is. And I guess I get worked up because to me, that's like a monster that is starting to appear. It's really, really bad. But then why and, is, the, the, is, the, is the object of your criticism constantly the, the bastions of the media elites and the, the administration? If you want to couch it in those terms, let's just talk about that, that retail level then and, and stop you know, talking about how the administration is behind it. Or it's, it's not. I mean, Bill Maher, I promise you, did not have conversations with Anthony Blinken. But I'm saying that it's important. The reason that it's, that it's important is because I don't think... The reason I'm pointing out um, why I disagree with the way Biden's been handling it is because, to me, the threat is bigger than the sort of... And I understand the point about, you know, constrained uh, options, but someone has to... There needs to be pressure to say, yes, constrained options, but there is also, like, 
the scale of the threat, right? And if you look at retail level pundits like a Bill Maher or like a Matthew Iglesias uh, or even someone Matt like Stoller. a Matt Stoller, right? Right, yeah. Guy's a fucking idiot, yeah. Yeah, no, I see, that's what, you I know? Agree. Like, but- and he said this, that anti-China policy is going to be the great unifier between the left and the right. And Matt Stoller said, that's Look, great. That's exactly what it is. And now Iglesias is talking to someone like, uh, was it Glenn Beck or whatever, saying, that's hey, maybe we idiocy. Can- Look, you know, if you, if you, 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 there's a really, really good counter to that that's from, uh, if you listen to my podcast that comes out on Thursday, uh, on that's March 25th, with Ryan Haas, uh, he talks specifically about this, about this, you know, idiotic idea that uh, China is going to be uh, the, the force to connect. Let me just read a, a little quote from that, because I think he, he said it so well. I, I, I thought that it would be a good idea to actually uh, write it down well, as I was editing this morning. Um, he said, it feels like China has become the policy equivalent of duct tape. It's capable of fixing anything. If you have hyper-partisanship at home, talk about China. If you have transatlantic problems, talk about China. If you need to give NATO purpose, talk about China. I think pretty soon we'll begin. Uh, China will begin to be introduced in advertising pitches for diapers. It's really reached comic levels. So he sees this. Then he goes on to say, look, if you crank on this, you'll find yourself, I think, quickly being pressured into mobilizing to counter an imminent threat. We saw this in the past, the rapid rise in defense spending during the start of the Cold War. You will see upticks in racism. By the way, we recorded this before Atlanta, which we are already seeing, and it angers me at the core of my soul to see this. It makes me so mad. So Ryan was, as I hope you remember, the director of the National Security Council's China team under under uh, Obama in his second administration. Uh, he is about as mainstream liberal as they come. And this is what he said. I, I just think it's, you're, you're I, I, I keep think I think you're, you're finding the worst examples of, of xenophobic liberals and holding them up as, as uh, I, I think I, I will readily admit that those people, they exist. There are the Chuck Schumers. There are all these people, but there are also a lot of really, really sensible people. Um, I guess then the question, my question is, and um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping for some positivity, honestly. So I really do want. To <laughs> then uh, read, read, you know, Ryan Hass's book. It's full. I, of I will. That yeah, sounds. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds like a measured, a well thought out. <laughs> very, uh, very, yeah, very that, well thought out. Very well thought. Uh, so clearly the mood's not good then. So instead of talking about you know whether whether Biden or whoever is not doing good enough, you know, in your estimation, knowing knowing you know. Knowing what you do, that xenophobia is on the rise, Asian Americans are being attacked, uh, worsening economic conditions, we're not likely to see an improvement on this anytime soon. Uh, what would you like to see happen then? Well, uh, what I would uh, love to see, well, you guys, all I mean, all of us need to pitch in on, because where we're meeting resistance with, with this is just in that simple claim that Asian American hate crimes are in any way related to xenophobia. We're getting people who won't, who reject that, who think that that is allowing the CCP to score a point, Right. We had and, a hard time convincing you of that that we should that we should keep keep pushing in that direction last year. So th- we that were doing that last year, and we you were know, doing that with you. I, I think that, that what I was the point that I was trying to make last year was that if the voices who come out suggesting that xenophobia is related to hate crime in in China or in, in the United States are people who are too tied to U.S. China relations, people like me, 
we will immediately be seen as carrying water for the CCP. We'll be immediate, that, that point will be discounted. It needed to come from people who were unconnected with China. It needed to come from Vietnamese Americans, from Korean Americans, from Japanese Americans, from, right. pe- from Taiwanese Americans, from people from Hong Kong, who can you know, also make the obvious realization that Sinophobia, that this irrational hatred of China is driving uh, anti-Asian hate. That's the point that I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that sounds, I mean, that, that is a tactical point that I think is important. But and now, I think obviously, you were right yeah. that, that it that didn't do any good. And we're here we are now with six dead Asian women in Atlanta, right? Yeah. So, you know, that is, that is I, I think it's a serious, serious problem. But, you know, these fuckers, basically, who are uh, trying to say that uh, Sinophobia... Uh, you know, pointing out xenophobia as, as as one of the the causes of this uptick uh, is allowing the you know the CCP to to you know push the ball down the field or whatever. They're proving my point, right? Mm-hmm. This is exactly the kind of alarmist xenophobia, uh, I mean, the, the entire kind you know zero sum mentality that they they see China as such an enormous threat that they're willing to completely subordinate. Uh, you know the the values they profess to be protecting. They're completely willing to see lives of my community, of our community, fucking sacrificed, uh, so that China can't score a fucking point. I mean, Jesus, the, this is the xenophobia that I'm talking about, right? Yeah, we're heading into un un uh, uncharted waters here. Uh, maybe maybe the exception is you know. Um, uh, the Red Scare when the Soviets were at the height of their powers in the 50s. But, you know, the Soviet the Soviet Union is gone now. It's dead. Yeah. Uh, and the and most they were recent white. comparable. And they were white. Right. Um, and the most recent wave of, uh, of geopolitics intersecting with domestic uh, social unrest would be uh, 9-11 and yeah. the persecution of, of Muslim or Muslim appearing uh, Americans That's in right. the United States. Um, and team, we we had talked about this uh, before, uh, and it's really it's really uh, so. All of that's helped fan the flames for an engagement in the Middle East that has dragged on for for what eighteen years? Yeah, nineteen. Yeah. As of this year, and not and it's not over. We have no we have no firm picture. We're never pulling out basically. Um, at the same time, um, that's it was it was Iraq. It was Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, we're talking now taking on China. Yeah, I think, look... This is a beast many magnitudes uh, bigger in geopolitical power, in raw power... Absolutely. ...than the Middle East in 2001. And one that's uh, or the Middle way East the more deeply intertwined with us, and where we are truly interdependent, right? Yes. So my, my concern here, and I mean, and I think Asian Americans kind of fall, get uh, ourselves... I'll, I'll call Asian Americans out for this, too. There's a, there's a faction... Um, that it is, you know, pitch pulling for the CCP, and it's like you guys can cool it. Like China does not actually need your help. You're not, you're not, uh, you're not saving China, or you're not, you're not rehabilitate. You're not doing jack for China in this right. case. Yeah. The extent of your engagement is really to preserve, uh, preserve the well-being of yourself and your homeland here in America. It's in your interest as an American, which I think is a tough. It's a tough pill for a lot of Asian Americans to swallow to feel like they are, you know, rooting for this country that has treated them abominably uh, and at best, you know, re- relegated second-class status here. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and it's uh, so, but pulling it back to like a more political, uh, more eggheady discussion on this, I mean, the ramifications are pretty big here. Um, there's only so much actual engagement, you know, being, quote, being hard on China that the U.S. is even capable of doing. Right. Um, that leaves Asian Americans as a very, very easy pressure release valve. I'm afraid so. so I, I, I don't find fault in anything that you just said. Yeah, it's, it's... so in that so in that case, I mean, um, so I'm at I'm, I'm at a bit of a loss. So you know, we started this conversation talking, critiquing, you know, like the Biden administration, um, uh, and you know whether whether he's doing enough or you know whether it's good or just not good enough or outright bad. Uh, I'm I'm just I think we're just kind of flailing for answers here in that case. Um, like well, Trump I... is Trump was in office for four years. Uh, someone did tr a track on this. And so he's been fairly consistently negative on China during those four years. Yet the amount of actual violence on Asian Americans stayed relatively low for those. There was a slight uptick for, f about, for about three years. Where it really popped off was last year. And that's entirely, you know, COVID messaging. Right, right. So it's hard to well, even say I wouldn't say, say entirely. Trump. I it's mean... There's there's a foundation that was laid in in the other things in the trade war. There was a foundation laid. There was you know they're, they're right. stealing our jobs. They're raping us right through. That's what China's doing to us. They're raping us right. That's what you know, Trump right. Said so there was an again. elevation in rhetoric, a gradual uh, a gradual worsening of public opinion on China, uh, but it had not quite yet manifested as street level violence on Asian and Asian appearing people on the right. streets. That entirely started happening with the Kung Flu and, right, and, and, you know, that just uncorked this whole thing. So I think, right. uh, I, Tina, I don't want to speak for you, but for me, when I'm critiquing, when I'm holding Biden and his administration to that highest standard, it's because we are immediately seeing the, the social, the downstream social effects of uh, leaders at the very top and their messaging. It really does make a difference. If we're saying that Trump's message on the, quote, Kung Flu drove up hate sentiment on Asian Americans. What's not to say that uh, Biden can't do, wouldn't be able, the Democrats wouldn't be able to rally, shouldn't be able to rally similar, yeah, down, in a different, in a better trajectory. What I'm, yeah, and, and what I'm really trying to say is that the tendency, the, there was a convenient, Trump was a convenient scapegoat. And I think that it was easy to pin, every, and they still do this. They pin everything on his use of the word, of the phrase China flu or con, right. uh, China virus. That, or that's flu. a problem for me, right? Yeah. And there, I don't think people are that, that simple-minded where, you know, a, a, a stupid playground slur like that is going to say, oh, now, oh, they said China flu. Now I'm going to go attack some Asians. I mean, I think the mechanism by which the violence is coming out is 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 a more sophisticated messaging to show that the government is you know and i'm not saying it's intentional but i'm saying this is the effect is that there does seem to be some kind of sanction that chinese are an enemy and so for the fringe people who have almost fringe tendencies for violence are interpreting that as Absolutely. open season First of all, let's, let's let's add to this. I mean, it's obvious. I maybe you're using just as shorthand, but it's not just the the terminology he used. There was also that whole that whole narrative around wet markets and bats and eating exotic animals and all these these things that we've drawn on from our you know this this uh, just nakedly racist bullshit that uh, that's all surfaced right. Where that we should be clear on that. Uh, that it wasn't just, you know, his decision to use the China virus or the Chinese virus or anything like that. But yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. They, they'd uncorked it and it, 
there was a kind of permission structure for, and it drew in all the crazies with propensity to violence and 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 set them free. But to yeah. suggest that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just I feel like I, I'm what I'm suggesting is that I think it is I think it is we're comfortable saying that there is a Trump side of America, Trump supporters. But we're not as comfortable saying that there's such a thing as, and I use the term liberal loosely to mean people who oppose Trump, who vote Democrat. It's a, in just a very loose term. We could say Democrats or whatever. But that there is a structure to how the, that, how you know public discourse is carried on up, around this segment of America. And that there are there is a media complex that is interrelated, that is symbiotic, that does work together in some fashion. I'm not saying being conspiratorial about it. I'm just saying that they're, it, they are of a piece, and that there is an, an emerging, uh, there is an emerging conversation coming out on that side that I find is actually uh, advancing the legitimacy of what could previously be seen as just country bumpkin, hick ass racism is now seeping into what would be considered more uh, upscale, upmarket, and more credible conversations to the point where scientists have had to call out the New York Times for being racist. And I don't think that's a laughing matter. It's not a laughing matter, but it's it's contested space, right? And, and, and this is still an area where there are there have been plenty of people who have pushed back and the, the difference is that they will respond to that pushback. There's a, you know, they will change the headline. They won't double down on this. We have to do it, but we've always had to do it. We've always had to do it. I'm not suggesting that the New York Times is... The, what, here's my point. I want to encourage Asian Americans to call shit out on the liberal side. And I don't want to... How I don't want to contribute? Yeah, sure, call them out, but I don't want to... I don't want to... I don't... I don't... I personally don't want to yeah, say, well. look... You've got to, you've got to, um, this is, this is what I, I mean, this is, but it's like, why the fuck would you do that right now when there's one side that, that is your, your clear ally in, in this, you know, there's one side right now where the liberals, these liberals that you are taking such pains to, 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 to skewer here, you know, what did the Biden administration do after Atlanta? They lowered flags to half mast. They called it a, they didn't come right out and call it a hate crime, but they immediately went and met with Asian Americans uh, leaders in Atlanta. This is not; they're not sitting idly by. They're sending strong moral signals, right? This is not what the Trump administration would have done. Come on, man. I agree. I, 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 those, those were, those were. I found those gestures meaningful. I know it's, it's cool. So at least we're seeing, right? yeah, yeah. yeah, I, I found that. I, I found that very that. meaningful. I was touched. Right, uh, it does I'm mean glad. something when the great, when the leaders at the very top show that they are, you know, standing, uh, that they are standing in solidarity on the side of the victims. Um, I hope that I, I hope that that fu- that motherfucker gets gets the book thrown at him. Yeah. Um, and I hope but it acts what? as a deterrent. Uh, at the same time, um, the Biden administration deported, just deported 33 Vietnamese Americans. I would see them as Americans back to Vietnam. Yeah, uh, there hasn't point. been fundamental, you know, so it's a, it's a matter of, you know, um, these gestures, which I, I appreciate. I don't know how to keep those those two, uh, these the actual policies that are coming on, their, ram- their, their day-to-day ramifications, and these, um, these big uh, gestures that are more moral signals than anything else. Not that that does not have value, 
um, just just trying to contextualize it is is becoming a very maddening exercise. Sure. Um, yeah. To link that back, I mean, we were talking about you know the Trump discourse on on uh, on COVID, right? The Kung flu and, and pinning it on China, etc. I think that I mean I think twenty twenty was kind of a masterclass in xenophobia because it actually uh, it actually brought elements of twenty twenty brought. Uh, kind of brought a 360 ring of fire around China. Uh, there is no real out. Yeah, what I mean yeah. by that is b- beginning half of the year, as COVID is picking up steam, um, Trump starts his campaign calling it the Kung Flu, all of that. Um, the, the media falls in line to start pinning blame on China, you know, questioning food practices and all that, all that stuff. It picks up steam. That, that attracted a certain... Yeah. Some media outlets, yes, that's uh, to be clear. Uh, some media outlets were definitely banging on that drum really hard. Um, that appealed to a certain percentage of Americans, I would say. I think Trump-affiliated uh, people were were far more likely to buy into that rhetoric. Sure. Uh, you're right. You don't see that rhetoric uh, passed around in liberal circles. And then comes the second half of 2020. So with COVID in full swing still, then we start to see more mention of the Uyghurs in China. The, the plight of the Uyghurs. And I think that's the hook that brings liberals into the anti-China sphere. Because yeah. now it's a discourse on human rights. Uh, the, the, the savior complex that Americans are, are, that's just bred into Americans. This is the ideology we, we eat and drink in this country. That's when the liberals started, started getting pulled into um, the, the sinophobia, I think. So now... Uh, we're a year. We're we're a little over. We're a little. We're about a year out from all of that. Um, we're seeing less of the kung flu, but the Uyghur discourse has now over has now dominated, and I think that's not a coincidence with uh, yeah. with Biden's ascendancy. Now we have uh, we have quote the liberals in power. That's a very loosely constructed sentence too, but br- broadly speaking, the Democrats are in power, and now we see Biden, you know, signing on with uh, the five eyes. Right, all five I signed on the sanctions on China regarding the the um, the Uyghur crisis, well, which which was just and, signed and the US and- which was signed what yesterday or or late last week. So at the same time that we have these big gestures commemorating Asian American victims of violence, we're seeing uh, we're seeing we're seeing the geopolitical underpinning of that same uh, of that same violence, you know, being pushed forward. Look, I think it's possible to believe that the discourse on the Uyghurs has been weaponized and cynically used by the Bannonite right uh, to try to, yeah, to uh, pull people from, from the liberal side onto onto that side. Uh, absolutely. There's no, no question that I, I believe that. But I also believe that the behaviors in question are worthy of being called out. Now, I am not somebody who thinks that call-outs for the sake of call-out is 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 worth shit. I mean, it's moral opprobrium can sometimes work, but not when you've got uh, an actor like China. I I think we need to look at the situation, recognize that you know the using our our you know largest bore ammunition, our verbal ammunition, using the word genocide like that. It's not going to do anything but make China dig in its heels and push people who in China might have been more sympathetic to the plight of the Uyghurs. Uh, Onto the, in, into the arms of, of the more strident nationalists. That's not, that's, I think that, 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 that is at cross purposes with what we want to do. We all agree, we don't want to see extra legal internments of people based on their ethnicity or their religion, right? We, we can agree that, right? Now, 
we I can I think that it's possible to believe both of these things. It's just one of the okay, one of the things that I really did enjoy recently was the Fried Zakaria piece on CNN, uh, where he came out and said, This is the game. Okay. The game is that the United States right now uh, is what well, we're we're almost four or five trillion into spending for COVID on these stimulus packages. Uh, there's going to be pressure put on the budget. There's going to be pressure put on the defense budget in particular. And so now what we see is a heightening and an exaggeration of the threat of China as a military threat. Yeah. Uh, and as a, as a nece- and that the proper response to China is for 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 us to uh, to increase drastically increase spending to meet the challenge of China. Uh, uh, quote unquote, and that was coming from Lloyd Austin. That's coming from Biden's administration. That there is a need for us to meet China or to not let China get the better of us militarily. And Fareed Zakaria was right in pointing out, I think, that that is a that is a complete exaggeration and misrepresentation of the of the reality of what's going on. Absolutely, and that I, I agreed with th- it perfectly. Yeah. Now. I think there's something even more basic than, than what we're talking about here. It's not just this military threat. So, and that, that's that's great. I mean, and this is something I would like to be able to talk about without everyone thinking you're wearing a fucking tinfoil hat, right? But so I think it, it, to get even more um, sort of psychological about this, I think that what's happening here, uh, what we we need to really understand, you know, if there's a bipartisan reaction to to China's rise, it's because you know America is acting on the world stage very much like white. Whitey is acting on the American stage, right? Both the United States, you know, in the macro and the white male in the in the micro uh, are experiencing this loss of prestige, a loss of privilege, threats to this, you know, long, long held hegemony, right? And they don't like it. They, they, they don't like it. And they've responded to it. If you see, you know, white America has since Ferguson, uh, the rise of BLM with these, you know, inchoate paroxysms of of hate and violence, and so too the United States is responding to China's ascent in, in just the same way it, with this paroxysm of fucking spasmodic uh, rage and violence, and and it's not a good look on America, and it's it's it just shows a, a kind of frightening frightening lack of confidence. Are you suggesting that we should have a little bit more faith in the Biden team? Because yes. I I think that if you think that, it's probably because you know more about that than the average American can fairly perceive. Is okay, fair? fair enough. Um, I mean, I know a lot of the people in it. I mean, there are now what, there, there are people in uh, who are at the China desk, and we know who they are. I mean, I don't know Laura Rosenberger personally, but the others I do. Uh, and if you... Christ, I mean, there's a lot of really smart people actually making decisions on China. Even people who, who tend to get, you know, vilified, uh, you know, the Kurt Campbell's. I, I've, I've interviewed him on the show. I, I know him. I, I know him to be, uh, look, do they, do, are there still elements of that kind of indispensable nation, American exceptionalist bullshit that, yeah, 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 there absolutely are. It still clings to, uh, you know, there will always be that, that sort of, you know, redolence of, of American, you know, hegemonic thinking. It's not going to disappear overnight. But boy, is this moving in a better direction. That's something that I honestly have to take your word for, because I don't know what to look for. I I only see what filters out into 
what's relatively mainstream. I see the effects that it's having on what I would call liberal discourse. I know you think that's too loose a term, but that's probably as coherent as Trump supporter. And that it's not good. Yeah, I think it's gotten quite... Um, At least it's, it's contested. It, and it's not on the other side. Now, I think we all understand that we're one election away from another complete you know, directional reversal. And yeah, and it's right. it's 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 you know a, a hair's breadth, right? I mean, electorally, there's just and now you know, foreign policy used to be something that could f- sort of float above partisan rancor. It no longer does. Now it is very much at the heart of it, and uh, you know we need to also accept that. We need to accept that that uh, there are pronounced differences between the overall foreign policy approaches of Democratic and Republican policymakers in this country. And we might not like either of them, but I mean, I sure as hell know which one is preferable. It's not just lesser of two evils. I mean, it may seem to boil down to that, but, you know. I mean, I, I don't think that's smart. This is like, you could, you'll probably disagree with me here, but I just don't think smart people in the room can, can have enough firepower to change the momentum of what's coming here. Okay. And and that's me. With you guys, it's always... You know, you're 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 in. Hold on, you let, spend I know, more I know, your, your, let me your just energy. offer a ray of hope here. All right, all right. <laughs> okay, because here's the reason, Kaiser. Here's the thing: is like I get what you're saying, but I also kind of have to speak to what I see in people and how we and how people are thinking about this, and I want to relate to that and represent it. You know, so yeah, it's these people. When you say these people, you people, absolutely, that's that's us. Uh, I want to say though that my. The, my optimism here is that we're just going to butt up against some basic realities. And I think just that's kind of what you point, you're pointing at to some extent to say, like, we can't really just divest here. But I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, and I think Fareed Zakaria's piece really points to this, is like, I, I think the responsible thing for Asian Americans to do politically in, the, in sort of like a, in, a, in terms of like longer term thinking about how to respond to all this we got to push for progressive domestic reforms and domestic investment. we got to push for America to think about how to improve the lives of Americans here through investment in, in, in our healthcare system, in our education, in our infrastructure, in everything. Like, we've got to just really turn inwards to an extent. I think it's time that America took a look at itself and invested in itself. And I think the more we do that, the less prone we are and the less able we are in terms of endless defense spending and this this submission to the paranoia that fuels it, uh, that we that Asian Americans will see, I think it is in our interest to to really start focusing on like America and to put the problems of Americans first. I think that 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 is something that uh, long term can work and is probably good on a number of fronts, not just this front. So, Jess, so, I think you guys should definitely read uh, Ryan Ryan Hass's new book because that's exactly his message. I mean, that's exactly it. It's all about look. Uh, the metaphor of a football game is the wrong one. That's zero sum. It doesn't work. It's a foot race. If if it's a race at all, if it's competition, and so be it. It's competition. It, it's it's about running faster and training harder and eating better. It's not about tripping the other guy, right? Um, and that's exactly what he what he he calls for. You know what? That's actually embedded in in the, the Biden administration's approach to every time they talking they talk about you know build back better or you know, they are 
trying to put American domestic considerations first. Yes, it's infrastructure week every week. But, you know, I actually think <laughs> their ability to push through this COVID relief bill, that was yeah, that's pretty impressive. I mean, they are that is very impressive. And then immediately to announce that infrastructure bill and the size of exactly. it, exactly, good for them. Right, I I, mm-hmm. I love that. Flood the zone with domestic spending. Absolutely, flood the zone with investment back into America and not into like these you know cockamamie uh, defense spending programs Absolutely. that are ruining the country Couldn't and putting us more. closer to war and resulting ultimately in the paranoid society that is tar- is that is the reason Asian Americans are getting targeted. It's that yeah. paranoia, you know? It's like, you and know, the lack the of what you said, the civic, the yeah. decline of civic engagement. I just, progressives like you guys and, and liberals like me, we, we have to make common cause against the real enemy. That's, that's all it comes down to, man. Yeah. I mean, we are so much closer than either of us to them. So much closer. Oh yeah, we're. I mean, we don't platform. We don't. We don't platform right wingers or anyone flirting with that ideology. So, um, so we're giving you a hard time. But uh, this is is the spirit of friendship here. Um, Toby Chow, have you had Toby Chow on your show yet? No. No. You need to have him on. Yeah. So he's been. He's he runs this organization called Justice is Global, and it's uh, they push a foreign policy that they call progressive internationalism. Uh, It's very much about you know. worker solidarity and it's very it's very progressive but it also uh, has elements of you know well i mean i think it's it's very foreign policy but those, those guys are super smart the dynamic duo of uh toby tobita chow oh tobita chow yeah, yeah and, we have not toby, had him okay. on but I, I know who that is yeah and Jake yeah, Werner. yeah. Mm-hmm. those guys smart are fantastic guy. just just mm-hmm. their stuff is you'll, you'll eat it up and i i um, and doing my best to give them more voice out in the world because I, I love what they talk about. It is a it is a politically more confused time. I just don't think it's mm-hmm. so. E- it's very difficult to clearly place oneself in the spectrum, you know, of the issues that used to dominate, which were more social issues. Now we're dealing with, uh, and, and for Asian Americans, it's become, uh, you know, particularly confusing because I don't think we've ever really had very well defined political identities in America. And, uh, you know, that's going to be a, a necessary thing going forward. So, you know, uh, I guess I really appreciate your willingness to come and engage us on these things, despite, I think, there being, I don't think we have a different, like you said, I don't think we have a difference in what we want. I don't think we have a difference in how we feel about what's going on. I think we have a difference in what we're paying attention to. And, you know, I need to, I think it is something that is very helpful for us to hear that, and and I, and I don't think this is controversial to say that most people don't really know the players inside the administration. We don't know. We don't have that granular knowledge that takes uh, a lot of, per, in fact, a lot of personal relationships to develop to even understand what's going on behind closed. Well, you may not consider them closed, but it's not that easy to perceive. Yeah. And so, yeah, we do see the Biden administration in a in a somewhat monolithic way, and. It's hard to read what's going on just by looking at the behaviors that's going on from the outside and whether we should feel good about it or whether and optimistic about it or whether we think that, and a lot of people have said this, left, you know, sort of left commentators that are very critical of Biden's uh, foreign policy, that fundamentally there's no difference between him and Trump. That is something that is being said and I think should be, I hope in the future, Made more clear through through both action and words yeah, that yeah. we are taking a different tack. 
I think yeah. I really hope we push back on that that because I think that's that's so simplistic and and simply wrong. Look, there are continuities from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. You know, we saw what they did in Syria just weeks into the administration. We we've seen you know a lot of the stuff in China. They've not dialed down phone ops in the South China Sea. They've not done a lot of things that I'd like them to do. Uh, but the differences are profound. I mean, even even just at the level of none of this gratuitous name calling, at least there is diplomacy. At least there is back channeling. I mean, I would be willing to bet that Anchorage was actually stage managed. I, I I'm pretty sure that uh, you know they they could put out feelers ahead of time and say, listen, Yang Jiechi, listen, Wang Yi, we're going to say a lot of shit that is going to make you very unhappy, but our people back home need to hear it. You're going to say a lot of of things that are going to make you know, us really unhappy and Americans really angry. But uh, we understand the need for you to say these things. They they get that, you know, if we understand that diplomacy is 70% performative, they certainly do. And so, you know, and then, and then behind closed doors, they actually get some shit done. And that's what, you know, wasn't possible during the Trump administration, at least not during the last couple of years of it, right? I mean, it's there was no diplomacy. After February of 2019, there was not a single phone call from the White House to Jung Nanhai, you know, for almost a year until the end of Trump's presidency, right? I know. I mean, I'm 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 enjoying I'm enjoying a little a bit of optimism. It's been a pretty uh, it's pretty been a pretty confusing and dark time for me thinking through these things. Um, so it is it is helpful to have someone who uh, has more experience on these things uh, being being uh, being optimistic on where things could be going. Um, I don't know. I still maintain a, a lot of skepticism and a lot of fear. Um, this is this is really coming home in a big way. I mm-hmm. think there is a a, a, t- a tendency among um, you know a certain class of say like educated upwardly ascendant people to kind of view history as something that happens on a TV screen. Yeah. That there is a that you know history is something you watch on CNN, right? It's not something that affects you. Or that you um, but we're all seeing it affect yeah. us. Yeah. It, it, so let's and there's, there's, there's one thing, one area I think where we can all lean in. Look, we need to fight um, to make sure that the, you know, what what did you call them? The, the sort of uh, retail level uh, narratives. Yeah. That they embrace this idea that anti-Asian hate is linked to Sinophobia. We need to mm-hmm. drive that point home. That is absolutely crucial. And if we do, this could be an actual breakthrough moment that, you know, those people in Atlanta won't have died in vain. It's as tragic as it is. You know, we can actually uh, do something with this. We've got a little bit of attention right now, a little bit of a spotlight. We need to, you know, be pretty unified in the voice that we we use to to address this. Yeah. yeah, there is real denialism about that. Oh, there is, still. and that's why yeah. we, I, I'm mm-hmm. calling on you guys. Just you know, let's let's push this idea. I mean, because it's it's substantial, and it, it's and it's it's you know evidence supported, right? Yeah. Well, we, I mean, I think we, we, we're mistaken. calling on you to, to help us. Yeah. yeah. So okay, yeah. we're making a deal. We're putting this out in public, so now we're on the record yeah. here. We're making mm-hmm. a deal. This is what we're gonna do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it gets really frustrating. Like, uh, just as an American. I, we, I would actually, I would like to know what is going on in Xinjiang. You know, I yeah. would. Um, the thing that I ha- that I've come to realize, I don't trust. I've heard, I've I've heard and read all the stuff that's available to me um, on it, and I I don't trust. I don't trust any of it. That's the problem here. So really, my my 
the tack I'm taking here is that the Sinophobia actually gets in the way of actual fact finding and yeah. truth searching. Is is my I think it's misinterpreted as saying, Oh, to push back on you know, to like what you want us to be, you know, uh, to be nice to China just because, you know, and no, it's not actually that it's a, it's a deeper thing. You cut out that orientalizing, that orientalizing, othering, uh, pathologizing lens on this shit. And the, you actually see the fact of the matter. That would be my, that's my call. That's my personal call to action and trying to figure out uh, how to navigate, uh, navigate this going forward. Yeah. Um, where I find, um, where I find it frustrating is when there's an utter lack of institutional support for that kind of fact, that fact finding. So I think it's it's people reference the New York Times with such disappointment because we are all looking to some institution that we can all uh, use as a touch point um, to kind of baseline our understanding of material reality and finding it to be so um, so slanted is is it's 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 anarchic honestly it balkanizes our media landscape um so you have serious factions going on with different versions of quote the truth um it's really disheartening um i guess that that's also a question for you that i have knowing that you have experience in this we're just looking at it from the outside um so uh what do you how do you feel about the state of media in the biden era knowing that there is still i mean it's not like the staff at the new york times or the washington post changed hands um, when the administration's turned over, and there's still a lot of the same uh, problems in those newsrooms as in the Trump era. Um, and, you know, what Biden and his administration does is one thing. How the media decides to uh, mediate that relationship between the people and the government and, you know, the outside world, that's a, that's that's another. Yeah, Do you I, feel I that... some, some optimism in that direction, too? No, I mean... <laughs> I don't think it's changed dramatically. I think that the, the trends that we've been seeing for a long time, uh, the, the refusal, basically, of the media to really come to grips with the fact that it is a a partisan political actor, that, that, that's been a problem for a long time. It hasn't sort of been upfront about its own role. I mean, it still sort of has this pretense of being this dispassionate, uh, you know, objective sort of... Uh, that was, that's been nonsense for a while. We have a lot of issues to sort out between... Uh, activism, act, you know, this is this is a social media phenomenon. Can a reporter actually have uh, a, a a discernibly partisan or discernibly activist uh, modality on Twitter, and then just you know hang that 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 the, the coat check when you they get into the newsroom? No, of course not. That that's that's ridiculous, and it's not going to happen. We're we're. You know, we've got a lot of problems with this sort of access journalism, uh, where reporters um, crave that access. Like, you know, the, a lot of people have been very critical of Maggie Haberman for for this. Uh, I, you know, see manifestations of it. I mean, I talk about like um, the way that Pottinger has spun people like Rogan, uh, and and just you know, sort of used him as a, a pawn. I, yeah, there's there's problems galore w- with it, but I think that. Um, the, the last four years of the Trump administration, uh, I think we saw journalism also in its finest hour. We saw uh, the uh, good case for why an adversarial model in uh, at least domestic reporting is a, a, a can can you know yield really good things. The fourth estate actually doing its job right. Uh, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I, I don't come down on one side or the other and say you know journalism bad, journalism good. There are all these problems that need addressing. 
It's just, you know, let's, let's try to do it without uh, lumping them all together, without lumping, without seeing any, first of all, the media, the Western media itself is not a monolith. The New York Times is not a monolith. Uh, none of these things are. I mean, we've got to break it down to the level of individual reporters and editors. And uh, yeah, that takes a lot of work. But I think if you pay very close attention to the bylines and, and the, the style in which people write, if you talk to reporters, you know, because they're accessible now, you can on social media, almost all of them, right? Uh, they want that kind of feedback, right? They'll, they'll engage with you. Um, I'm just curious. I hope I'm not coming across as adversarial at all here. This is um, this is a an article from a man named uh, uh, Michael uh, Sipley, Chipley, uh, former editor for the New York Times, uh, for the New York Times specifically, who was uh, calling out you know malpractice in the journal in 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 the newsroom. Um, this was a surprise. This was. I had a tendency to kind of be like, well, yeah, freaking called it. Uh, but I also want to want to want to baseline that with uh, what you know from having been inside a newsroom. So here's the quote. Uh, By and large, talented reporters scrambled to match stories with what internally was often called, quote, the narrative. We were occasionally asked to map a narrative for our various beats a year in advance, square the plan with editors, then generate stories that fit the pre-designated line. No, absolutely. Uh, that, that's that's a, that's he's put his finger on something. I I of a very uh, good journalist, a woman named Mia Lee, who was a uh, who was writing for the New York Times. I've had a lot of conversations with her recently. She's come to the United States and has started working for publications here. Um, she told me, for example, uh, about a story she had pitched about Shake Shack opening in Beijing, right? And, <laughs> She wanted to, to write about the, the, you know, that there were really, really long lines, and her editor insisted that the reason that there were long lines is because the Communist Party assigned those people to go and make the company that owns Shake Shack dependent on the Chinese market, so that they could then be manipulated. And she said, "No, Chinese people have a lot of friends in New York who've raved about Shake Shack, and they kind of want to try it for themselves. It's a fucking burger, okay." Um, and you know she 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 had several examples like this. She wouldn't tell me what publication uh, this was, but she said it's a major mainstream, you know, media outlet. And so yeah, no, Ugh. there's no question mm-hmm. that there's a lot of, of 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 you know preformed narratives, and that there's an expectation that people will write to uh, what they believe they already know. There are a lot of perverse incentives to do that, uh, but once in a while, you know, there's also. That that story that's going to get a ton of attention because it flies in the face of an established narrative, and they they can feel really you know like bold and and uh, like they they're they're um, there's there's both those tendencies right. There's something adversarial uh, in in every reporter worth his or her salt right, and so sometimes they they want to turn that against a, a hardened baked baked in narrative as well. You know, this is this is how how it works, right? I mean, it's unfortunate, but uh, yeah, call it out though. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I spend a lot of time. It's it's funny, you know, when I'm talking to you guys, I feel like I'm the guy who's defending the practices of of the Western media. When I'm probably <laughs> much better known for being somebody who's constantly talking about the shortcomings of the media in its reporting on China. Yeah, I mean, just just zooming way out. I it's I I I characterize what's going on as an as a 
a break in trust and the ability of people to trust, right? It's a sure. real crisis of trust right now. Um, so when we're talking about like young people then, um, specific to that, a major, like not being able to trust the country that they, that, that is all they know, that they are citizens of, that they are invested in. Um, when we're talking about the, the, you know, media, we're talking about, you know, who do we trust to give us truth with a capital T? Um, we know that there's a complete, uh, that, that, that terrain is very complex and it's not clear anymore. I'm not sure if it was better back in the days when there were like five network TV shows and three newspapers and we all, everyone just got their truth with a capital T from those vectors. But, um, but we can absolutely say right now with our plethora of options that we are no less, we are no less confident that what we have is the truth or maybe we are. And that's the problem, right? We are too sure that we know of is the truth. Right, right. And that's a lot. That's behind a lot of, you know, like teen, you talk about your uh, how unnerving it is to see like genocide denier being thrown at people as like a conversation ender. Right. That's that's being way too certain of some kind of truth. It's it's being way too certain that, you know, the truth and that others do not. Um, So in that sense, I mean, so um, and if we're talking about like political, you know, see, I I just don't. I mean, I think that while we can understand that epistemic certainty has definitely slipped I, I am not ready to go down this sort of, you know, ultimate, you know, nihilistic slide either. No, no, no. I'm asking. So I guess it's a more, it's a direct question then. Um, then um, you, uh, is it fair to say that you um, trust, say, the Biden, the direction, the trajectory that has now been set by the change in hands of the presidency and, you know, political Look, figures? I, I've got now? a lot of problems with the way that they're handling things. I think there are a, a, a lot of problems, but on balance, yes. On balance, I think it's just such a fair sight better than what we could have expected, given the exigencies of you know and the realities of politics. I think that uh, they're not disappointing me as badly as they could. I, and yeah, okay. that's that's where I am. But just on this this whole business of you know where do we find the truth now? We're we're definitely in a moment where uh, the old epistemic moorings have fallen away, and we haven't erected new ones. Uh, or we have maybe too quickly, and and they're going to prove to be you know really fleeting and just unstable. Um, so yeah, it's it's extremely difficult. But there are uh, there are actors in the world who we know are you know trying to uh, decenter truth. Right? I mean, that is different. That is more pernicious to me than people who are trying to, you know, in good faith to, to have an anchored representation of what truth is. I think that I believe that what you guys are fond of pillorying is, you know, the mainstream media. They are at least trying to do that. I, I don't believe that it's being done in bad faith. I believe that they're subject to all sorts of human foibles, you know, to accept, you know, uh, what they already, have, you know, the, 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 the handed down narratives that they're not going to interrogate absolutely everything. They're going to be imperfect. But this is better than the sort of post-truthers on the American right or out of Putin's Kremlin. Uh, I, I am much more comfortable with uh, seeing a good faith effort by uh, genuinely committed people. People don't go into journalism for the money, okay? They, they, they all, most of them, have some notional commitment to this, this idea that they're trying to speak a truth. And I trust in the product of that much more than I do what comes of this cynical, 
deliberate pulling out the epistemic rug that I see happening on the American right constantly. So yeah, there because you go. I th- okay, that's that's um, that's a good that's that's a good answer. However, um, my characterization of the right is that they are selling uh, the idea of an absolute truth, and that's the appeal of it. I think uh, that's tough to and that's tough to fight because I I, I do agree with you. Uh, the truth is complicated and messy, nuance. Everything is a is a is a damn shade of gray. Nothing is a monolith. Um, and in a confused and confusing, anxious time, then the alternative is is a, an ideology that says, we absolutely know. We know vaccines give you autism. We know uh, climate change is a hoax. We know, we, we know that it's brown people invading the suburbs that is the problem. Um, it's it's yeah. really so hard there to are these sort see of... the counter to that. Because the counter to that is, well, you know... I, do some thinking uh, or something. Yeah, for sure. Like, Those, it I, I get have, it. Those are what I would say is like what Teen would call that kind of retail level of, of, of new truths. Uh, so QAnon, yeah, that's that, that fits in that category uh, and a, a lot of this nonsense. But I think the people who are peddling it are cynical enough. They know that that's not the truth, the people who are doing it. Um, and it's only made possible when you first decentered established truths. So the first step is to make them uh, you know, to to fan anti intellectualism, anti you know technocratism, anti you know uh, science, anti authority. Right, that's that's what you do first, and uh, you know flatter them. Why do you think this? What they're always being told in QAnon: do your own research. If you know what you think is research is clicking on a few fucking links off of uh, you know a YouTube video is research. Then yeah, okay, they're doing their own research, uh, but I don't. I, I think that that what's happening at the top is much more cynical than that. It's it's it really is. You mean on the right on the right wing? Yeah, on the right. It's it's a, a, an mm. endeavor to actually unmoor the the very idea that we can have a shared basis for fact based conversation. They, that's what they're attacking fundamentally. I also think there's a bit of denialism on the side of the left. And by the left, I mean just anything right of hard R Republicans. Um, anything left of hard R Republicans. Everything left of, yeah. Um, which is, you know, even in even in the far left most discourse on China or Xinjiang or anything, um, there's, there's a bit much of a moral consideration in the discourse for my, for my taste. By which I mean... Uh, presenting the thought of American interventionism, pre- debating the issue as if it's uh, it's it's just a litmus test. If uh, if we determine that what's going on in Xinjiang is, is uh, passes our our moral threshold, that interventionism is uh, warranted, justified, and that uh, it's not even debated whether we're going to win that. In my own mind, if I were to encounter irrefutable evidence that there were mass uh, killings, systematic mechanized killings of any ethnic group in any country, irrespective of how intertwined we were or how, um, I, I, for me, a, a military option wouldn't be off the table. I mean, I think that there is a beyond the pale. Um, I certainly don't think that China has, has reached that threshold. Um, and I certainly think that, but, but no, I think that you can't strip morals out of foreign policy entirely at this point. It's just not possible. 
It's this is this is how the American you know uh, processes uh, foreign policy, and this is not something that you're. It's apt to change anytime you, soon. You may not. You're talking sure, about diplomacy, I mean, but you're talking about diplomacy because we've already stripped all morals out of our foreign policy to the extent that we've allowed torture. <laughs> we've no, I, I agree. I mean, that we've supported the Saudi Arabians. It's, it's deeply fucking hypocritical. But that that well, unfortunately, we're still seeing a lot of that same just really kind of, um, you know. And I don't. I I, I want to take back the word unfortunately. There, I think it's not. There's there's nothing wrong with it. There are people who. Uh, as far as they can tell, to the best of their ability, there is a large-scale gross violation of what they believe to be fundamental human rights going on in a country, and their impotence, you know, does not prevent them from expressing outrage. That's, you know, it's it's. I don't I don't have a problem with people doing that. I have a problem with them. You know, if it's false and if it's perform merely performative, if it is you know being done in the service of you know weaponizing a narrative, but you know, do you not feel indignation sometimes about uh, the suffering of of people in countries outside of your own? I I mean, I certainly absolutely. Do, do you not absolutely. feel it for the Rohingya, or do you not feel? Uh, I I feel. To answer that question, frankly, I feel that American people have been so overlooked in ter- not just in terms of our material well-being, but in terms of the way we're just lied to and manipulated. That I frankly don't think that any of this concern, for the most part, and I'm sure there are do-gooders that that feel different. But Americans don't really have the capacity to to feel true empathy about the rest of the world because we don't know the rest of the world. We are we only know the rest of the world through, I think, false or distorted images of it that um, I, I think any empathy or, or, or concern. And, and this is what I see in America is almost like an engineered uh, response. You know, the kind of things that we are meant to care about. Like, for example, um, you know, the way that uh, the way that public opinion is is shaped prior to a war and the kinds of of management of, you know, concern about um, a specific people versus another type of another group of people that happens. And. I guess for me, it's like, I just don't believe that the, it's not that I don't believe things are happening. It's that I don't believe Americans even know how to care about the rest of the world anymore. Mm. And I think it's, I think it begins with us caring about ourselves in a proper way before we can do that. And I I I don't even think Americans Americans love egotistically. If we care about human rights abuses, it's, it's from a position of superiority. I, yeah, and I think, and I don't think Americans even care about each other enough for the requisite sort of, you know, empathy to extend in a real way to the rest of the world. And I don't think that there's any doubt. There's no, there's no case to be made that the U.S. has acted, you know, it, when it with with force to really further a true sense, a genuine sense of trying to relieve suffering around the world. 
I think that the record shows we cause a lot of suffering around the world. And so I'm not particularly uh, I'm not particularly impressed with concern, American concern around the rest of the world. I don't think that real knowledge about the, the past of the record uh, makes that. Uh, I think we need more skepticism around that. I think that's what we need. Yeah, I'm just pers- simply personally. not ready to impute uh, such bad faith to people. I just, I, I, I am. I, I just think I look at all the wars we've started, and I said, how I'm much? I'm talking about. Do you really I'm need? talking about you know the earlier part of your of your um, your little monologue just now about the in, in inability of Americans to feel true empathy for for people outside. I I I can be pretty cynical. I can see a lot of this stuff as just showboating and. You know, moral performance, uh, virtue signaling, if you care to use that f- phrase that's been hijacked so badly by the right. But at the same time, I, I am not willing to go as far as you and say that it's uh, quite so rare as you seem to think. I don't, I mean... Um, There's plenty of good faith. I don't I don't know how to productively care in that sense, because the elephant in the the $900 billion a year elephant in the room is the American military st- military. Right. So like taking the issue of like of Iraq, I was I was a teenager when when 9-11 happened um, and we and we engage we invaded. Um, I remember very distinctly, you know, um, seeing the WMD discourse and thinking, OK, yeah, that would be. Yeah, if they, sure. That seems like justification for that seems like justification to put boots on the ground. Sure. I'll buy that. Uh, 20 years out, I mean, was that the right mindset to, was that the right uh, mindset to have? No, it wasn't. And um, It wasn't. No. And I'll, I'll fully, I'll fully own that. Um, and 20 years out, we have, we have definite proof within, within one person's lifetime here, just my own here that we're talking about, where that, that change of mind happened. And I, I'm starting to see that, that I'm definitely starting to see, you know, echoes of that starting up again. I mean, this is how, you know, consent manufacturing actually works, right? It's not, it's always reactive. Everyone talks about it as if the question we put to them, should we go to war with China? And then it's a referendum, right? Yes or no? Do you, Kaiser, uh, want to go to, to war with China? Yes or no? And you, and we, most of us, if we were put that way, we would say no. But the way this works is, you know, it's to, to, to curry up, uh, to curry up support for this, yeah. for consent, it relies on it relies on back it relies on demonization back it, that. You know, on dehumanization yeah i don't on, need to right, you wrote the, you yeah. you spent a career t- unpacking all this in, in your work so i don't need to lecture you on that so given that that's definitely a thing that happens um it's i don't know how to care about the uh the atrocities that are definitely going on all over the world so i do know that uh, a lot of them get very unequal coverage so that's that's definitely oh, one sure thing do, yeah um, nobody gives so, a shit about Haiti. Right. Nobody gives a shit about Haiti. An actual, you know, democrat, you know, a populist, uh, democratic uprising against a U.S.-backed dictator. Um, I if think we're New York about- Times did did apologize for its support of a coup in Bolivia. I think it said, "Oops, we didn't have enough information." Really, they they, they keep doing that, right? That's how it happens, right? Um, they push this. Uh, they they push the whole you know actual genocide angle um, with Adrian Zenz, and then quietly backtrack that, right? And backtrack that into actually, it's a cultural genocide. Um, nobody hears the apology, but you hear the you hear. 
you go in hard and then apologize quietly sure. later. Sure. I don't um, know that that's so, again. I don't think that's a deliberate strategy necessarily. Uh, you know, we keep, we keep coming up against this. Uh, I mean, you guys have a seriously dark read on on you know motivations of a lot of people. And look at I, the times. Yeah, I mean, I I get it. I mean, yeah. it, it's. I don't think we're. I don't think we're cynical though. I do. I do agree this. I don't think we're cynical. I think we are pessimistic, but we are looking for positive responses here. And I just, I, I guess the difference is that I've given up on the idea that the, the, the good guys are going to come prevailing again. I'm not even sure they're the good guys anymore. But you're right. There is, the far right is not an alternative. I, I think we should all just learn to agree, you know, that that, that, that can be just stipulated to. And not worry so much. And I think uh, I don't because think so. it, I think that, that that needs to be constantly. No, no, no. I mean, just within smaller circles. But I think you're right. I think that you know when people are participating in real uh, politics at a national level, that is a major concern because the the America we have a is finite still under threat. We should not be spending yeah. it, you know, litigating the smaller differences between progressives and 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 liberals. We should be spending it, you know attacking the gigantic chasms you know just trying to uh, go at our our common enemy i just just think that this is this is the sweating this that's, stuff is it's a waste that's very of time. fair that's fair it's mostly you know par- parsing the the, uh, the differences here in that case you know what is our common ground what do you see as uh, uh, christ i mean as you know, the middle way of- we're we're fighting against a genuine look look what does the Trumpian, the sort of Bannonite crowd say about China. They believe it to be an absolute existential threat. Would you call it fascism? So I, again, the that's, threat? That's, no, the, 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 it's fascistic. It I, mean, I don't think it's... So, fascistic, so, okay. Yeah, it's fascism. But that's the character... I mean, but that is the character of the threat. Oh, no, a, oh, like, oh, oh, you know, what... what you mean the threat from the right, from the American right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that, it's, what, it's, that's what you're fearing because because it's fascistic. I, I it's, it's also it's genuinely warmongering. I mean, right. not not this this right. sort of you know. You know. Uh, it's absolutely fucking amoral. It's deeply and you know it wears its racism and ethnic nationalism on its fucking sleeve. It's so, uh, it's so evil to me. It's so reactionary right. that that. You know, I, I I just don't want to spend another minute arguing with you guys. I just don't want to. I mean, it's just this is not productive. <laughs> it's, I, well, I disagree. I disagree. It's not productive, and I don't think we're I, I don't think we're arguing that that's not a huge threat. I think that the difference is that I'm seeing more and more people. Lose well, I mean, faith. I think the, the problem isn't you know the the New York Times really. The the problem is much more Breitbart than the New York Times. I think they're the enemy. Right. I don't think they're the problem. I think they're the fucking they're, enemy. Exactly. They're the enemy. Yeah. Let's focus on the fucking enemy then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in uh, that sense, I mean, I, I, I do think we're we're not quibbling. I don't think we're quibbling. So then, I, I mean, the the common ground that we're fighting are we are we some are we agreed that you know a more lo- inwards focused uh, policy. Is called for. Yeah, absolutely. So, more ground. of a focus. Okay. Right. So, we believe uh, in restraint in American foreign policy. We're against militarism. We're against, you know, the imposition of sort of, you know, or reimposition of an American hegemony. We're okay with the world being more multipolar than and it is right now. 
Uh, we're against chest-thumping American exceptionalism, right? These are all things we can agree on, right? We don't want to see more of this in the world. We're, uh, we're people who uh, all agree that there are different paths that are determined by wildly different sets of historical experiences, that history is contingent, that there isn't, you know, it's not on the side of liberal democracy. It's not, you know, we don't see that as the, the great teleology of, of history's direction. We all, we agree in fundamental social justice. We believe in the dignity of individuals. We believe in, uh, you know, fuck, I mean, we, you know, we believe in racial equality and gender equality. We believe in uh, a more just and equitable distribution of the fruits of, you know, globalization or um, mechanization or, you know, all of these things, right? I don't think uh, there's just a ton of common ground that we have. Yeah, I, I think. Agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. So I just, think. I think assessment of the threat is not the disagreement. I think. I think it is. It is. And again, I don't even think it's about really response. I mean, we're even saying that the proper response is the same thing. I think the difference is um, that you're obsessed. Kind of like who? Who? No, I think the difference is who we're talking to. Right. Okay. And I think we we is a difference of how to talk to people and what they like how to convince them that you know that there is a common project and part of that is sort of validating people's pessimism not just appealing to their optimism but validating that the pessimism that they feel is genuine and that there needs to be uh within the left let's say that broadly that there is room for reassessment of one's own positions, right? So without let's, let's immediately take a saying that you're being of an issue, right? Let's take a concrete. Let's say right now mm -hmm. we're facing this this issue of a massive flare up of anti Asian violence in America. There are a couple yeah. of ways we can we can uh, work a message here. One would be uh, let's let's call it my way, which would be to uh, to to proclaim the obvious you know fact that. Uh, all of this demonization of China, the China Initiative, all the the name calling, the the the, uh, the insinuations about bioweapons theories or lab leaks or whatnot, and the, the deliberate conflation of these things, all these things add up. And we can talk about these things uh, separate from issues like Hong Kong or Taiwan or Xinjiang, because we don't we can agree that people are not going out in the streets and beating up Asian people out of solidarity with the Uyghurs or even, you know, a sense of that. No, it's it's because they've been activated by these things like uh, Chinese as a vector of disease, Chinese as, uh, you know, all all spies, all stealing your jobs. or Those are the things that are directly affected. So I wouldn't introduce into that discourse then, oh, and we should question whether Adrian Zenz is actually, you know, telling the truth about that. I wouldn't, no. I would say... We can uh, condemn China for its violations of human rights in Xinjiang at the same time that we uh, want to understand that that's being weaponized to, you know, to further demonize China. And at the same time that we understand that there are all these other issues uh, that are more pressing that are actually resulting in anti-Asian violence. And we should attack this. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can, whereas your approach might be, you know, to you know, 
I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what would no, no, go ahead. You know, but <laughs> yeah, but tell me what you see. I'm, yours I'm, I'm, I'm right. curious to to, yeah. to challenge you know all, all the narratives, including the narrative on Xinjiang, uh, and I can pretty much promise you which one is going to actually have more appeal to in, at the retail level. Um, so you're asking, you know, why are we why are we contending over some things? And my uh, my contention would be that that you know. For the most part, we are in total agreement. But that escape hatch, that escape hatch that you mentioned, which is non-interventionism, uh, asterisk, and that asterisk is if uh, your assessment of um, you know potential atrocities occurring in Xinjiang pass a threshold, then you would be in favor uh, of military intervention. Or, and I think that, uh, I mean, you know, or some I, kind of intervention, some right. kind of some kind of action. Uh, some kind of action to counter that and potentially, you know, yield, you know, yield the liberation of the Uyghur people from that. Let's just put it this way. I mean, if I did believe, I, I mean, I would that that if there were evidence of sort of you know Treblinka Auschwitz Dachau level murder, it would put that government beyond the pale to me. It would I would no longer regard them as legitimate, and I would seek uh, ways to see them overthrown. Right. Yes, well, and I think the way that works, would be, you know, I would seek the destruction of what I would regard as a truly illegitimate regime. Well, for the other thing is I, un, the unfortunate reality is that probably the closest thing to the world in the world to that standard. I'm not holding it to that standard, but if we're going to use that standard in terms of lives, in terms of, you know, death and torture and all that stuff, it's us. It's us. So... <laughs> You know, I think that taking a values-based look at the world, I mean, one of the problems is it becomes a little bit disembodied and we forget from where we are talking. Yeah. And uh, it, it is important to assess ourselves and before we think that we can go. And I think that part of the, you're not in a position of strength. I think at least part of it was a critique. It wasn't just an expression of Chinese sensitivity, but it was also a critique of U.S. interventionism when... Uh, you know, the U.S. itself is probably one of the worst, one of the causes of a lot of the suffering that we're talking yeah. so, about. So, I mean, I, I, I agree that like, if, if your imperialist project, your anti-imperialist project, rather, doesn't start with the U.S., that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I would agree yeah. with you in, 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 in as far as that. But look, I mean, I, uh, I've seen enough evidence in Xinjiang to know that I cannot uh, dilute or downplay or, uh, I mean, there's, it's, 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 it, we're at this point right now uh, where not only would it be, it would just, uh, my conscience wouldn't accept it, but also tactically, I think it's just folly uh, to, to, to try to, you know, Look, that, that that genie's out of the bottle already. It's something we're going to have to wrestle with. It's not going back in. There's just no way. Uh, the I'm interested in now, how do we resolve this? How do we actually see? And I, I think, again, you know, and here maybe we do agree, is we need to back off a bit and give China a way to step down and, say, declare victory and go home. Uh well, I think we should stop funding. We should. I think more attention should be placed on the U.S. Uh, sticking its fingers in Xinjiang to begin with, and doing its best to foment 
foment unrest there, well, which has been a very long yeah. project of its own. I don't know. I don't. Uh, so I, I, guess, don't I don't. I mean, see where I was going wasn't that, actually. Uh, where I was going, yeah. I mean, I, I'm no expert on this. I'm just a nerd who had way too much time on her hands last year. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know any of this. Um, I, I, so where I was going with that is that is so you set that bench that benchmark for yourself, right? If it if what's going on matches or surpasses what sure. what we know to have happened in you know the German concentration camps, then and only then would uh, would some would some action as yet unspecified be warranted. Is it fair to say the way I think of sinophobia in that kind of conversation is then it's clear that there are people for whom who for whom it's absolutely certain that that benchmark has been surpassed. Yeah, no, they're they're, they're Is just... that fair to say that that's that is the modulating effect of sinophobia yeah. where for yeah. you it has not been met, met. Uh, for all the people who are shouting genocide denier at uh, at teen or various other people who uh, try to try to try well, to shout do not deny. I don't deny anything. They shouted at me too. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, even... I just get yelled at because I profess ignorance. But it's just there are so many people who seem absolutely convinced, based on very flimsy quote evidence, uh, that that is actually going on. Yeah. Um, that that to me is the action of sinophobia. I think there's and I think there's there, you know to the extent that we draw a line that can't be crossed for you know uh, for China. Explain then how do we how do am I supposed to how do we interpret Biden saying that, you know, uh, bin Salman, there's going to be no repercussions for the killing of Khashoggi? How do we how do we despite having concluded that he was like, how how do we process these things? Like, I do think we need a system of some sort of moral uh, consistency so that we can buy into a political project that actually we believe in yeah, rather let's, than let's just come up merely with one always in the next 10 minutes i, I can i yeah you yeah I, it would be great if there were some yeah you know, yeah i mean table it's always it's always it. fucking too you know it's always fucking inconvenient to talk about this shit but it is it is true i mean i think that is why i think, I think that's the appeal of so. uh, of populism populism and unfortunately uh the strongest the strongest signal comes from the right which i think is uh, is is deeply uh, worrisome yeah yeah and yeah. will lead to some tragedy. That's why I, I, I think they I, like what make America great again, right? Um, ultimately, if it, filtering out the, ultimately, it's trying to meet basic. It, it draws people in with the racism, the sexism, the reactionary, you know, counter, you know, reaction to 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 what they see as a, a culture out of control, right. spiraling out of control. Um, but what it boils down to is, you know, rooted in material need. It's an inward-facing project fundamentally. I think that has deep appeal. So if there is a if there is a counter to what's going on on the right, then it has to be you know a leftward-facing populism, one that's actually saying, "Hey, look, um, this foreign policy thing. This is a distraction. This is then we have to be focused on material needs of Americans at home." Well, that's exactly People what this the, foreign policy for the middle class is about, right? If you actually you know read. Uh, what uh, check out the speech that that he that Biden gave at the State Department, his first foreign policy speech. There, I think he articulated all exactly what you just said: that foreign policy needs to serve the interests of ordinary Americans, and he needs to make it relevant to them again. Yeah. Was there anything specific, like addressing, like every dimension of American society is uh, is crumbling, if not already d disintegrated? Right, education, healthcare. Yeah, and so that's uh, I mean, social again, services, infrastructure. This is something the Biden administration has hit again and again and again. Right, uh, 
that the first priority is to get our own house in order. I, I, okay. I'm down with that message. Uh, but, you know, again, I think what we're, we have a different take on the, the you know, the, uh, the political exigencies that Biden is struggling against. I, I think that uh, maybe I am uh, too cautious and, and maybe I'm overestimating the limits that, that are on him. Um, maybe you're underestimating them. And it's, it remains to be seen. But I, I have a reason to believe why I, I, I you know, I think that his, his realm of his range of choices is, is very circumscribed when it comes to, to China policy right now. Yeah. You can't hit well, I did vote for the man. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm a Biden voter. Good for you. So I did my part. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I raised money for Hillary. All right. Yeah. I was, I, I'm a Democrat. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it. I'm <laughs> glad to hear it. Anyway, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Well, uh, I've enjoyed really this. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I did. Yeah. You know, honestly, like I, I, you know, I think it's important in a way. I don't know how you feel about the this role, role model kind of thing. You are a role model for people. You're a role model for us. I feel like it is important to to model, uh, you know, political talk. <laughs> okay. Something that we, the Asian Americans, don't really we don't really do a lot of. Yeah, the uh, definition of uh, uh, so, you know, civic engagement. Yeah. Um, well, um, happy so, to do my part, and thanks for having me back on. You. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming back on. It's a it's a real honor. It's always a pleasure. So, Kaiser Kuo, everyone, check out Sinica Podcast. Uh, just Google Google S I N I C A Sinica Podcast, and you'll find it. So, yeah, uh, highly encourage everyone to go wow. over there, subscribe, and check it all out. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Teen. You know, I've I've been hitting the U.S. China relationship so hard just in the last year. Uh, so yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I've been listening. It's a it's a it's they're good talks. Great, great, so, great. I'm glad. I'm glad it's out there. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Hey, you have Thanks. a good night. All right. Thank you. Care.